All right, let's open our Bibles together to Genesis 25. Genesis 25, as a reminder, uh, last week we walked through chapter 24 and considered <clears throat> God's good providence from, from that chapter in providing a wife for Abraham's son of promise, Isaac. And today we move into chapter 25. We'll cover most of 25, but not all of it. We'll cover the last part of chapter 25 next week. Um, and today we're looking at uh, God's sovereign choice, God's sovereign choice, and uh, we've, we've, we're covering some, some rather uh, heavy doctrinal ground over these weeks together with providence and sovereignty being the forefront of our conversation last week, uh, this morning God's choice, uh, also known as God's election, um, the doctrine of divine election when we when we use the word election from Scripture, we're referring to the fact that God chooses people or individuals to belong to Him in a unique, special way. And as the Bible presents election, election refers to God calling people out of darkness and into His light and awakening them from the death of their sin and making them alive uh, to Christ and in Christ. And the New Testament especially refers to those elect people of God, and the elect are those who are chosen by God, entirely by God's grace, for the unique and special privileges of know, privilege of knowing God through, uh, through salvation. And so just by way of uh, just explanation, clarification, uh, maybe just to uh, cause us to settle in and let the text speak to us this morning, uh, I recognize when we start using words like providence and sovereignty and election, it, it creates a certain sense of tension and certain conversations maybe conjure up and different thoughts and ideas, but when we look at the scriptures, divine election is not meant for confusion for the believer. It's actually meant for confidence for the believer. And so when we walk through election this morning from Genesis 25 and next week, we'll cover it again next week uh, in really a more extensive manner next week. So this week is like part A, next week is part B. You only understand part A fully if you come back for part B next week, just a clue there for you. Uh, election is not meant for us to have some sort of mindset of fear, but should instead uh, infuse us with faith. And we have to be careful that we don't let the, uh, the mechanics of election, how election works, cause us to miss the meaning of election. And so with that, with all those lightweight introductory comments before us, let's jump into Genesis 25 here and we'll read through uh, verse 26. Genesis 25, verse 1, Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. Remember, Sarah had, she's, she's died at this point. Most scholars believe this is after Sarah's death. Abraham takes this next wife, Keturah. She bore to him Zimron, Jokshan, Midan, Midian, uh, from whom are going to be the Midianites, who are going to be the ones that, uh, that the brothers sell Joseph into slavery later on, just to put that thought, uh, let that thought hang in your mind there for, I don't know, a couple months probably. Uh, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dedan. The sons of Dedan were Asherim, Letushim, and Leumim. The sons of Midian were Ephah, Epher, Hanak, Abadah, and Eldaah. All these were the children of Keturah. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac, but to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the east country. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. 
Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled at Beer Laharoi. These are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar, the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the, of the sons of Ishmael, named in the order of their birth, Nebaioth, the firstborn of Ishmael, and Kedar, Abdil, Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, Massah, Hadad, Tima, Jatur, Nafish, and Kadema. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names by their villages and by their encampments, twelve princes, according to their tribes. These are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. He breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. Notice the the comment about Ishmael's death is different than Abraham's death. It simply, the text simply records he breathed his last and died. We don't have the comments like Abraham breathed his last, died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, indicating the line of promise with, with Abraham. Verse 18, they settled <clears throat> from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt in the direction of Assyria. He settled over against all his kinsmen. 19. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean, of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. The Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. And two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. What a endearing way to recognize a child's birth, right? And they called his name Esau. <coughs> Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in the tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Pray with me. Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. We confess your word is truth. Your word is living, active, sharper than any two-edged sword, and pierces to the deepest recesses of who we are. We ask, Lord, that by your Spirit, that you do that work in our life right now, this morning, as we consider the teaching of your Word. Help me to teach your Word well. Help us to hear your Word well. And in all things, Lord, we trust that by the preaching and receiving of your Word that we will be made more like King Jesus. We love you. Speak to us now through your Word. We pray it in Jesus' good name. Amen. A couple words of context, introduction, and then we'll dive into the actual focus of the chapter when Esau and Jacob arrive. Abraham dies, but the Lord's plan continues. We see that in the first, first 11 verses. He has these other sons, um, and these other sons are the fulfillment of the nation's promise that, that God had made over uh, to Abraham. And to these other sons, he gave gifts. And so he gives them gifts. He's kind to them. They're not, they're not of the promise. He didn't give them all that he had, like the text says he did with Isaac. But he gave them gifts, and he sends them away. And then we have this, this comment about Abraham's death in, in verses 7 through 11, that he breathed his last, verse 8. He died 
in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. And that first causes us to actually think about Abraham's experience of life, right? Quite a full life with the promise of God coming to him in Ur, calling him out from his homeland and from his home people to the land that God promised that he would show him. And then he finally gets much later, years and years and years later in his life to where he owns that a part of that land by really an exorbitant price for the, the, the burial of his wife. And then all the, all the ins and outs, almost sacrificing his son, going into Egypt and experiencing those things with Pharaoh and, and all of what he's experienced. And the text says that he died in a good old age, a phrase that, that means that one, he died on the perfect day for his death, which reminds us that everyone has this appointment. We all have this appointment with death. He died an old man, 175 years of really God saturated kind of adventure. And then it says he's full of years. And the phrase there, full of years, means that when he died, he died a very satisfied man. He died a satisfied man. He, he died knowing that God had fulfilled his promise and he was satisfied with his life and his, and his death. But in, the, in his death, leading up to his death, he actively makes plans for the future by sending these other sons to the east and taking care of his own son, the son of promise, Isaac. Verse 5, he gave all he had to Isaac and to the others, verse 6, the sons of his concubines, they're probably referring to just Hagar and to Keturah. Abraham gave gifts, and while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the east country. And remember when we see this movement toward the east, we're, we're moving away from God's promise, away from God's presence. And so why does he send them away? He sends them away so his other sons provide no conflict for the son of promise. He's doing what he can do in his own thinking, in his own reasoning, in his own journey to, to secure for Isaac that which would be the promised coming Messiah. And so not every, <clears throat> not every physical son of Abraham, we have the list of these sons, and then later we have Ishmael and all of Ishmael's family. Not all of the physical sons of Abraham received the promise, only one, Isaac. Isaac is the only one who was the son of promise, and the New Testament teaches us, Romans 9, that, that it's not the children of flesh that become the children of God. It's not just because they were natural-born children of Abraham that they became, they became children of the promise. Romans 9 says, but the children of promise are counted as, as offspring. And so we're, we're faced with the question here, are we a child of the flesh or are we a child of the promise? More on that in the latter part of the text. But then the, the promise continues, verse 11, after the death, death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son. And it's a very condensed version of saying the same thing that God did for Abraham to Abraham and through Abraham, God is doing with Isaac. Those simple words there, God blessed Isaac, his son. The promise is, is continuing. So Abraham dies, then we then we're told here in verses 12 through 18 that, that Ishmael dies as well. We have a recounting of of his family line. It's a very condensed version, and if you kind of run the family tree out, we, we see that, that Ishmael becomes the, the family tree of the peoples that are going to populate the, the areas of modern-day Arabia, the Middle East. And so these are the generations, is a phrase that begins verse 12. We've seen this phrase before. It's been a long time, actually, since we've seen this phrase. But this phrase, these are the generations in the book of Genesis, marks a changing of the storyline. And so it's a, it's, it's a bookmark inside the, the, the book itself that 
Helps us to see, okay, something is changing. We'll see the phrase again in verse 19. These are the generations of Isaac. And so the generations of Ishmael are dealt with in just a a few short verses here. And Moses writing this about 1,400 years later after these events occurred to the people in the wilderness, he's able to infuse people in places and make connecting dots. But he's not the son of promise. Ishmael's not the son of promise. We remember that from chapter 16 and following. He's not the son of promise, and so he's, he's outside the, the promised land. We're told he, he fathers 12 princes, verse 16, according to their, their tribes. And that's the fulfillment of the blessing that God pronounced over Hagar and Ishmael in chapter 17. And, and then we're introduced to this statement at the end of verse 18. He settled over against all his kinsmen, over all his people. It's a strange phrase. It's one that in English we don't really use these same kinds of words, but the The point of this phrase means that he and his people are going to be a people of violence and hostility. They're going to be, in in a lot of ways, kind of arch enemies of God's people as the storylines of the scriptures continue. But he settled over against all his kinsmen. And remember what, what was pronounced whenever Ishmael was born, chapter 16, verse 12, he shall be a wild donkey of a man his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. And so then much later in life, as the kind of obituary to Ishmael, there's this, we have this statement, he settled over against all his kinsmen. And so they're just they're fighting with, with one another. They lived as law unto themselves in hostility toward one another, and we see that playing out in the life of Ishmael. So then we come to the next, these are the generations statement in verse 19. These are the generations of Isaac. And so from this point forward, it's going to be the generations of Isaac, but it's really focused on Jacob. Isaac is, has just a brief, a brief snapshot here in the next couple chapters. And then from here to chapter 36, it's all, the text primarily focuses on, on Jacob. And so these are the generations. And two truths come out of what's going on here with the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son, Abraham fathered Isaac. The first truth God works according to his plan and purpose. God works according to his plan and purpose. We're introduced to a problem in the text in verse 20. Uh, Isaac was 40 years old, not the fact that he had a wife named Rebecca, but later, I'm sorry. Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife, verse 21, because she was barren. So we have, we have a problem here. We, know, we, we remember Rebecca from chapter 24, that lengthy, that lengthy discourse given to Abraham's servant going and finding the wife for Isaac. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his prayer. So the problem is that Rebecca is barren. Why does that that pose a problem for us? It poses a problem for us because we need children, right? Because we have this line of promise. It's very similar to the problem that Abraham and Sarah themselves had, right? For years and years and years, they have no child. They try things their own way. The Lord says, nope, my way is the only way. And so in, in uh, in that problem... We're going to see providence come out, but we're also going to see God's plan play out. So he's, he's praying. He was married at 40. Later we find that he was 60. Uh, in verse 26, he was 60 when she had the children. And so for 20 years, for 20 years of marriage, they're anticipating this promise, and the promise is not being fulfilled. God is working according to his plan and according to his purpose. Now, one thing they did not do that, that Abraham and Sarah tried to do is they didn't try to remedy the problem on their own, right? There's no Hagar kind of event for Isaac and Rebekah. They didn't try to 
They didn't try to fix the situation with their own thinking. But instead, notice what they do. They pleaded with the Lord. Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. <clears throat> and the Lord granted his prayer. So the, the phrase here, he prayed for the, to the Lord, literally means he entreated the Lord. He prayed intently to the Lord for, for children. And God honored, honored that prayer. Which reminds us, and we saw this in, in last week's sermon as well, in chapter 24, that God moves when his people pray. God really does move when his people pray. God has ordained prayer to be the method by which he moves in our lives and in our world. Think about what's going on here. They have a problem. They don't have children. They don't have children, and he prays to the Lord apparently for a really, really long time. And maybe in kind of customary sense, like we would do, you know, a year or two, well, we, we aren't conceiving, and so something's up. And then after year three, four, five, six, well, let's start talking to the Lord. And so then as time goes on, this desperation builds, and he starts entreating the Lord. He prays intently to the Lord, and God moves when, <clears throat> when he prays. What did Isaac pray? We don't know, right? Like we look at this, it just says Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife. But it just seems to make sense that Isaac actually prayed to the Lord according to the promise that God had made. In a similar way to, to how Abraham talked with the Lord, but he's praying to the Lord according to his promise. And thinking about the fact that God moves when, when we pray, when we don't pray, what does that communicate for us as believers? Well, when Isaac is praying, he's praying to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And they had tried everything to fix, to remedy the situation. And in their own power, there is no remedy to the situation. And so they're praying to the Lord. He's praying to the Lord. A lack of prayer in the believer's life demonstrates a lack of belief in the believer's life. So when I'm not praying, I'm expressing the fact that I really don't believe what I confess. It's not that I'm forsaking the faith or, or falling back into falling into apostasy or anything necessarily. It's just functionally saying, I don't believe what I confess. James 4, 2, you, have, you do not have because you do not ask. And you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Later, James 5, 16, the prayer of a righteous man has great power as it is working. And the power here in Isaac and in our experience is not in the prayer or in the one praying, but it's in the one to whom we pray. The power of our prayer is not in the prayer itself, making sure we have like the right magical words to make the prayer work, or in us, in our own selves, as the ones who are expressing this prayer, but it's in the one to whom we pray. Notice, Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife. Reminding us that God moves when we pray. And here divine intervention is still required. God moved. The Lord answered his prayer. What a, what a, like, it's a low key statement, but it's huge. Verse 21. He prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And understanding barrenness in the culture of that day helps us to realize the, the weight of the situation. So they have the weight of the promise, right? That, Abraham certainly told Isaac, hey, this is what the Lord told me when I was back at home with all my family. And this is what the Lord reaffirmed and reaffirmed and reaffirmed. And here's the covenant and here's all these things. And so he has the weight of the promise that's upon him. But then he certainly also has the weight of culture that's upon him. 
And so in that culture, barrenness was kind of a cultural shadow upon a woman specifically to not be able to, to bear children. And so he prays for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord, the Lord granted, granted his prayer, which points to the fact that this conception was a miraculous conception. For 20 years, nothing happened. God was going to have to make this conception occur. No, no effort of man was going to accomplish conception for Isaac and Rebekah. And in, in this conception here, where it's God moving and Rebecca's conceiving, we see, and this is in the line of the promise through whom the, through which the Messiah is going to come, we see a foreshadowing of how somebody actually becomes a child, not of natural birth, but of spiritual birth. It's a miracle. Her conceiving is, is a miracle. And just as Rebecca and Isaac couldn't bring forth children without God intervening, with, without God intervening, the Lord granting this prayer and Rebecca conceiving, we also don't become God's children without God's power. No human effort results in new life from the Lord. No human effort on our own or from others. That's how John wrote in the beginning of his gospel, John 1. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And so as we turn in the narrative and she conceives and we see that the line of promise is going to be secured, we're reminded that, it, that, that God is the one who is, who is at work here, accomplishing his plan, intervening in divine ways according to his purpose. And we have to think, <clears throat> that in proximity to where we are here, God made you in the same way that he made these two children in Rebecca's womb. God made you. God formed you. God knew you. And listen, you had no input in any of that. You didn't willfully say before conception, I think it's time for me to be conceived and be birthed and then grow. It's all God's hand and God's work. Psalm 139, 16, your eyes saw my unformed substance and your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. So according to what Psalm 139 is teaching us, before the first day occurred in our life, all of our days were already written out which is a crazy thought because we are accustomed to turning pages of the calendar, right? We go from October 1st to October 2nd to October 3rd and from 2022 to 23 to 24 and if the Lord wills to 2050, whatever. But the Bible teaches us that, that God made us, he formed us and knew us and we had no input into that process. He planned our days before they existed, which... which clearly teaches us that we are here because God wants us to be here. We're in this moment in history, we're in this place and time, we're in this geographical location, all the way to the point that you are here right now, this moment, listening to the preaching of, word, of God's Word and the singing of God's Word, because that's what God wanted you to do. And that's who God wanted you to be today. There are no accidents, no surprises in God's work in God's economy. So they couldn't make Rebecca's womb work. They needed God's divine intervention. And 
We can't turn ourselves toward the Lord. We can't call someone else to turn toward the Lord. The Lord alone does that work. So what is our role in that work? Well, our role is what Isaac did. He prayed to the Lord. He prayed to the Lord. He entreated the Lord. He prayed fervently and intently to the Lord. And the Lord granted his prayer. I wonder if you have someone maybe in your life that you're praying that they would be given new life, that they would come to know Jesus in a life-changing kind of way. And it's clear that no effort of man is going to accomplish that because you've tried your different ways of sharing the gospel and encouraging and helping and serving and ministering and doing all of these things and, and nothing has occurred. And if we're not careful, we just, what do we do? Like we just give up hope. But what should we do? We pray to the Lord. We pray to the Lord and ask God to grant that prayer. And so God works according to his plan and his purpose. The second truth in, in Genesis 25 here is that God chooses his people according to his divine wisdom. God chooses his people according to his divine wisdom. So, he, so she conceives. <clears throat> and we're introduced with a surprise in the conception. She has this struggle going on within her. And then we find out later that, oh, wait, it's because you have two babies. And the, the second part of the, of the text here, 22 through 26, reminds us that it's, it's the one that God is the one who saves us by his power. This, this problem that arises here, so she, she asks the question in verse 22, look at it. If it is thus, why is this happening to me? Which is basically like, I have no idea what's going on in my womb. And so at some point, as the, as the children grow in her womb, it, it goes beyond just the, hey, there's an elbow going across the belly. Did you just feel him kick kind of thing? Like there is turmoil in her womb. The language points to the fact that they were actually fighting in the womb. It's kind of crazy. I've never experienced it. But some of you ladies can just kind of think like, oh, wow, that had to be pretty wild. But in this problem that arises with her question, tension is elevated in the story. And her question, if you look at the text, the way the text is laid out, her question in verse 22 is actually the center point of this, of this narrative. If this is what's going on, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. Here we go again. Pray. Right? Go talk to the Lord about it. She went to inquire of the Lord. And so what is the Lord's response? Verse 23, two nations are in your womb, two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. She went to inquire of the Lord and the Lord tells her, you have two nations, you have two people. They're divided. And the, the word divided there in verse, uh, in verse 23, the word divided there speaks of like a violent collision. They're, they're crushing one another, which from a mother's perspective, she probably had to think, oh, okay, that kind of makes sense. Because what's going on physically in her womb points to the fact that they are, these two, these two children are, are divided. And the Lord says next, the, the one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. So one's going to be stronger, but one's going to be dominant. <coughs> but notice what happens. The, the, this phrase at the end of the Lord's response to Rebecca, the older shall serve the younger. God is yet again turning the expected norm upside down, right? Who's supposed to be the primary person in the family? The firstborn son. But God says here, no, 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 the older is actually going to serve the younger. We saw that with Ishmael. We know the, the, the sin that brought Ishmael about, but he's still the firstborn son of Abraham. And the Lord said, no, no, your son, the, the son of promise is, is Isaac. 
And so one's going to be stronger. The firstborn's going to be stronger than the other. And we see that play out with how Jacob and Esau interact in chapters to come. But the older shall serve the younger. The younger is going to become the, the primary one. The firstborn will not be the promised line. Reminding us Isaiah 55 and other places, God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. He works in ways that we, we don't expect. We, and honestly, let's be, let's be real here. As we've walked through Genesis, we've seen God do some very unexpected things a lot, so much so that the unexpected should become expected. And still we come to a situation like this and we're, we think, oh, well, I didn't, maybe, I didn't see, maybe I didn't see that one coming. But then, when the text says the older shall serve the younger, we see that two lines are going to develop. Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples from within you shall be divided. There's a division that's happening with, with these two lines of these two, of these two children. And the two lines are going to coincide with the two lines that we've seen multiple times throughout the text of Genesis already. Remember, it started with the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And then we go to the line of Seth and the line of Cain, the line of Shem and the line of Ham, Noah's sons, the line of Isaac, the line of Ishmael, the line of Jacob, the line of Esau. And Genesis is teaching us in in an Old Testament kind of way that you either belong to God's people or you don't belong to God's people. We don't have middle ground where in, in relation to the Lord. We either belong to the Lord or, or not. And so you, wherever you, you're here today by God's design. Well, how do you know it's by God's design? Because you're here. Because I'm here. We're here today because of God's design. And so every person here in this room is either of the line of promise, the line of blessing, or the line outside of the promise, the line of cursing. There's no, there's no in between. There's no like purgatory kind of neutral ground to try to figure out like let's let's weigh the scales and balances and see how this is going to play out in the long run. It's we're either in Christ or we are not in Christ. And to not be in Christ is to be separated from God because of our sin and rebellion toward God. And so he's introduced to these these boys the the, the days to give birth come verse 24 and what do you know she gives birth to twins. The first comes out, red, uh, like it's really a weird way of referring to a baby, but it's referring to the fact that it's, it's indicative of this dude is going to be like the uh, masculine alpha kind of man. And his brother comes out. He doesn't have any sort of physical description. We don't even know what the, what the second baby looked like. It just says he's grasping his heel. I mean, it's like out comes Esau and, and Jacob's not far behind right, is, is, is the picture. And so Esau is described physically, and let's not forget who's, who's the original recipient of this story. God's people in the wilderness under the leadership of Moses. And so as Moses is recounting this, they would not have had any trouble trying to, trying to correlate who Esau ended up being. Esau ended up being the Edomites who are going to be some of the arch enemies of the Lord throughout the history of the Old Testament. And so then the second baby comes and he's, <clears throat> he's holding Esau's heel. He grabs the heel. And so the first baby is called uh, Esau. The second baby is called Jacob, which often is referred to as like deceiver or trickster, but they probably wouldn't have named their baby deceiver. Like they were, they're probably pretty good parents. Wouldn't have really named their baby 
Deceiver, the, the word Jacob means like he grabs the heel. And it's just kind of like, well, I mean, he grabbed his heel. Let's just call him heel grabber. And so then it kind of turns into, as we see Jacob grow and his personality develop and his, and his uh, techniques develop, that he's actually quite, quite a deceiver. But the emphasis here is on the older serving the younger, which points to the fact that God chose Jacob over choosing Esau, reminding God's people that they belong to God, and not just that they belong to God, but for the people in the wilderness, how that actually came to be. And if you belong to the Lord, you belong to the Lord because he wants you to belong to him. In the same way that that Jacob is the son of promise and not Esau here. Now let's think about this in the mind of the Israelites in the wilderness outside of Egypt and later generations. This is a this is a story of origins, right? Spoiler alert, later Jacob is going to have his name changed to Israel from whom the nation of Israel is going to form and develop from his sons and the tribes and, and all of those things. We'll get to those things at some point in time, Lord willing. <coughs> but as God's people are, let's say, in the wilderness, or maybe as God's people are later going into the land of promise to fight battles that they think they can't win, or maybe as God's people generations later are in captivity in Babylon, thinking that God had given up on them and deserted them because of their rebellion, or maybe in the 400 years of silence when there was no spoken word from the Lord in between the closing of the Old Testament and the onset of the Messiah coming in the New Testament. Thinking about this origin of where they came from and how God brought this about, this question of how did we get here? Reminder that for God's people, they're, they're God's special people, his treasured possession, his holy nation, his royal priesthood, according to what Deuteronomy teaches, and they got there on God's grace alone. God's grace alone. If you belong to the Lord, you belong to the Lord only because of God's grace, not on your merit, what you accomplish, who you are, not on your works, not on your family, not on your morality. And in fact, Romans teaches us that God chose Jacob before Jacob even had the opportunity to do anything at all. Here's what Paul speaks about. We'll we'll press into this a little more next week, but Paul says these words in Romans 9. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I'll return. Sarah will have a son. We know that's pointing to Isaac. And not only... Not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had not done, and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older shall serve the younger. So when we read here in verse 23, the older shall serve the younger, the way Paul interprets those words is by saying that God chose Jacob before they were born and before they had opportunity to do anything good or bad. Our minds think, well, God knew that Esau was going to be a wretched wretched man, and so certainly he didn't choose him. And Jacob was going to be jacked up, but he was going to be a little bit better, so therefore God chose him. But Paul says, no, God, God set his affection toward Jacob and toward the people who would come from Jacob before he was born, before Esau was born, before they had, had opportunity to do anything either good or bad. Why? 
in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger. What is God's purpose in election? Paul uses the phrase here, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. What is God's purpose in choosing any person to become his child? What is God's motivation? What is God's drive in calling people from darkness into light and to setting that in, in, in due course before that person is even an imagination in the minds of their parents? God's purpose in election is his own glory. God chooses people for the glory of his name. And so when we think about Jacob and Esau, why? Why did God choose Jacob. We'll look at it in more detail next week. Why did God choose Jacob and, and not choose Esau? Because in his mind, in his infinite wisdom that our finite minds don't attain to, he received immense amounts of glory. God's purpose in election is not some uh, sadistic machine that's just operating and clunking along, but God's purpose in election is his glory. And so when, when God says to Rebecca, the older shall serve the younger, Paul comes and says, well, that's, that's God's choosing. That's God's choosing so that God would be most glorified. Think about these truths as we think about election. <clears throat> How do I know if I'm elect? Well, here's what scripture teaches. If you know the Lord Jesus, if you have repented and believed on Christ, you're the elect which brings God immense glory. So if you know the Lord Jesus, then you're, you're elect. Election has had its effect on you. And you don't become a child of God because of your family. You don't, you, don't get, you don't get brought into God's family because of your family. Your parents might be the best parents on the planet. Love Jesus like crazy. Do all of the works of righteousness. And when, when they sin, they repent well. And good morals, all these certain things. But family doesn't hold credit with the Lord. You don't become a child of God because of your family. You don't become a child of God because of your works. You don't become a child of God because of your works. Well, I'm more good than I am bad. And, and I do these good things and I serve people and I, I, I pay my taxes and I give money to the church and I come to church on Sunday morning and I'm, I'm trusting that as I'm heaping up all of these works that, that God's going to see me as a good person and he's going to make me his child. That's not how it works. You don't become a child of God because of your works. You don't become a child of God because of your morality. In our culture, it seems especially we have these categories of sins, and as long as I don't, I don't commit any of this category of sins, then I'm going to be okay. I can commit these little lighter sins, and God's just going to kind of like wink at them, and, and we're going to be all right. But the Scripture's pretty clear. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. None is righteous, not even one. Every person in their natural condition is separated from God. You don't become a child of God by your morality. You don't become a child of God but because of your intelligence, the way that you think, your skill set, your giftedness. No, you become a child of God by his free, unmerited, matchless grace alone. It's the only way. That's the only way. For by grace you have been saved. It's grace alone. And the very word grace points to the fact that you don't deserve anything that you're getting from the Lord. 
What do we deserve from the Lord? Romans 6.23. The wages of sin, what we deserve because we sin, is death. And that certainly points to a death where our heart stops beating and, our, and we stop breathing. But it more deeply points to a very real spiritual death in an eternal place called hell where we're separated from God to endure the punishment for our sin for all of eternity. That's what we deserve. We deserve death. But when God chooses us and makes us his own, he pours his grace out upon us. We deserve nothing good from the Lord, but he gives us his best, the Lord Jesus himself, his own son. God so loved the world that he did what? He gave his only son. We become a child of God because of his free, unmerited, matchless grace. And that grace is demonstrated when he chooses us, he sets his affection toward us, he pursues us with his love, and he calls us into his forever family. And in the same way that this truth would have encouraged Believers in the Old Testament, there in the wilderness, among the nation of Israel, the people of Israel, we also should be encouraged. Unless we actually don't know the Lord. If we don't know the Lord, we should actually be frightened. To hear that true eternal punishment exists in a real place called hell because of our sin should cause terror within our hearts and minds. And listen, like, I'm no like manipulative, let's scare them into heaven kind of preacher. It's simply the words of Scripture. And if you don't know the Lord, you were born into your family, you were born at this moment in history, in this place, and we believe that you are in this place today so that you can call on God to save you. So that you can hear, you are separated from God because of your sin. But God sent Christ to die for your sin. And through repenting of your sin, asking God to forgive you for that sin, and placing your faith in Him, you can receive the gift of eternal life. You don't deserve one bit of it. But God pours His grace out upon you. You are here so that you can call on God to save you. All of your days were numbered before you existed so that you could call on God to save you. Well, how do I know that's true? Well, because Jesus himself said it. John 6, 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. The very fact that you have an inclination to throw yourself on the mercy of God is an indication that God is calling you to himself. In his mercy and in his grace. Romans 10, 13. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you don't know the Lord, don't let a teaching like this scare you. Let a teaching like this push you toward the kindness and the mercy of God who loves you and will save you by the work of Christ. And if you do know the Lord, you were made according to God's plan. You were chosen in Christ. You're saved by Christ. You'll spend eternity with Christ because you belong to Christ. You're immersed into the people of Christ and you believe in Christ because God chose you to believe in Christ. You. <laughs> Think about this. Why did God choose me to be his son? 
knowing all the failures that I brought to the table before he saved me and all the failures I was going to commit to this point in time after he saved me and all the ones I have reserved in the days ahead that are to come for me if the Lord so desires to leave me here. Why did the Lord call me? For his glory. It's, there's no boasting. There's no boasting. God is using the foolish things of the world to confound the wise so that no flesh can glory in his presence. Nobody's going to go into the, to the portals of heaven, high-fiving God, saying, yes, we did it. No. We're going to be granted access into heaven, and we're going to throw ourselves at the feet of the Lord Jesus, thinking and praising him, knowing it's only by your work. It's only by your grace. There's no reason I should be here. There's absolutely no reason I deserve anything good from you. But you've poured out all that is good on me. If we know the Lord. We'll close with these words from 1 Peter 2. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Do you ever stop and just think that you actually belong to the Lord? A people for his own possession. You belong to the Lord, if you know him. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Are you one of God's people? If you aren't, with the authority of Scripture, I simply just plead with you. Repent and believe today. Today. And if you're thinking like, you mean like right now? Yes, right now. Eternity is at stake here. This is no, it's not strong-arming you into some sort of fake decision to, to relinquish some sort of guilt. There's an urgency that the Scripture demands us to compel people, to plead with people, be reconciled to God. But what do I have to do? Ask Him to save you. There's, there's no magical formula. There's no certain words you have to pray. Just ask Him to forgive you for your sin and to confe and, and confess your, your belief in Him. And if that's you today, when we're taking the Lord's Supper, we ask you just to, just to do that as guys are passing around plates of, of bread and, and juice. Just throw yourself on the mercy of God today. And then tell somebody about it. Tell somebody. Somebody you came with, somebody who invited you, somebody you know. Let us pray with you. Let us encourage you. Let us, let us begin this walk of faith alongside you because you will have become one of God's people. If you know the Lord, don't forget, you belong to God because he wants you to belong to him. Why are you God's child? Because he wants you to be his child. What a crazy, pride-crushing thought. Because we know that Paul's words of Romans 7 are very true. There's really nothing good in here. There's nothing that, that makes sense for God to set his affection toward us. You belong to him because he wants you to belong to him. Pray with me. Father, thank you for your grace, your favor. 
the deep well of mercy that is ours because of the work of the Lord Jesus. Lord, we confess it's not our family, our works, our morality, our intelligence, our skill set, our giftings, any other thing that we might place value on. It's only your grace. Father, if somebody here doesn't know you, Lord, would you please save them today? Or we pray for them in the same way that Isaac prayed for his wife. Asking you, Lord, to do the work that only you can do. And Father, we praise you, we thank you for the encouragement that we, your people, the church, receive from a heavy doctrine like election. Knowing that if we're in your family, if you've called us to yourself, you only did so because you wanted to. And that your purpose of election is that you would be glorified through our lives. And so we glorify your name. May this truth grip our hearts and stir our affection for the Lord Jesus. We pray it in his good name. Amen.